You are listening to the audio from Life Community Church located in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about the ministry or to financially support God's ministry through us, please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org. Today, Pastor Reed Bradley will take us through 1 Samuel chapter 17 in the series, The Sling, the Sword, and the Sovereign. Let's now join Pastor Reed Bradley as he delivers the message. So glad to have you all with us as we get ready to continue our series through the life of David in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And as we get ready to approach that, let me go ahead and just say another word of prayer for us. Lord Jesus, we ask that in the midst of coming to your word, that you alone would be glorified. I ask that you would allow your words to flow forth and that you would uh, give grace to me to be able to deliver your message to your people for your glory. We ask that in all of these things we would be receptive, that we would be ready and excited to hear from our great God, a mighty Savior, and one who is unlike any other. And in your great name we pray all of these things. Amen. As we get started this morning, I want to welcome you. My name is Reed Bradley. If you don't know who I am, I'm one of the pastors here at Life Community Church. And we are continuing this week through our series about the life of David. We're focusing specifically in 1 Samuel. Today we're going to be in chapter 17. I encourage you to open up your Bibles. We are going to be spending a lot of time reading from the scriptures this morning. We've got a lot of verses that we're going to be working our way through. And uh, basically, I'm going to be reading a section, talking about a section, reading a section, talking about a section, and we're going to go on through it. We're going to be coming to one of the most familiar stories in all of the scriptures. In fact, if you've ever seen a children's picture Bible, this story is almost certainly in it. And if you were going to say, what are the two most well-known stories in all of the scriptures, apart from the birth of Jesus... David and Goliath is probably the next most well-known story. There's something about it which resonates with every person who hears it. Now, much like any scripture and any truth of God, we tend to take that and warp it upon ourselves to receive glory that is not our due. And so this morning, uh, I desire to help us to walk through this in such a way that Christ receives all the glory that he deserves. There's a lot of challenges in the midst of doing this to try and identify with specific characters in the scripture, to not identify with others, and there's a temptation to do what's called allegorizing, right? You, you try and find all of the different meanings and all the different details and how this compares to my life today. And while I am not going to make the case that God is going to help slay the giants of your life or anything of that like, we are going to realize that there is some truth about that. There is some truth that we are in need of a Savior, of somebody to stand for us. And so with that in mind, I want to catch us up a little bit to speed. And uh, kids, for those of you who are in here, I want to give you guys a specific challenge. Uh, 
I want you to think about two questions. Adults, you can do this too, but you don't get a reward other than the goodness that God has for you, right? Kids, I want you to think about two things. The first is, uh, how do I define champion? When we come to that, I'll be very specific, so you write that down. Second question is, who is our champion? Okay, how do I define champion? Who is our champion? Come to me at the end of service with those two answers, and I'll give you an Awana buck in your Awana bank account, okay? Adults, if you want to come and tell me, you get, I'll give you a high five or something, okay? To catch us up, though, right, last week we talked about the anointing of David, and we talked about the themes and the idea that, that God sees in a way that we cannot see. And it's not just simply the scope of his sight, right? Well, he just sees all of the hidden things, right? It's beyond that. His sight causes things to happen, right? It is sovereign. It is a ruling, invested, overseeing of the future so that when God says, I have seen for myself among the sons of Jesse a king for myself, right? He is saying, I have selected this person. And we said last week as we looked at that, that this idea is that God chose David for this role. And that is why David is significant. And even the phrase that is so often used and ascribed to the description of David, right? The, the man after God's own heart is really, it's emphasizing it's God's choosing of David, not necessarily David's choosing of God. And that's really important for us to understand. And, and we're going to see how this begins to play out. Now, 17, we have as we get started, Saul is still king proper of all of Israel. The people are gathered around and to him. The enemies of Israel still stand, but David is still a boy in the eyes of any person around him. But he's anointed the king. So how, how does this play out where you have two different people, each anointed in some sense, but one chosen by God? And how does this play out for God's people? And how are we going to see this unfold as we continue through the next couple weeks? This week, we're going to focus on this specific problem, and we're going to see this idea uh, of God's champion. And so without going too much further, I'm going to begin to read for us in chapter 17. We're going to read the first 11 verses as we get ready to start our discussion in our consideration of this text. So chapter 17, verse 1. After I finish, keep your finger there because we're going to go back, okay? Just FYI. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they gathered at Soka, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soka and Ezekah in Ephes Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped at the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and the Israelites stood on the mountain of the other side, with the valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and his, was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. 
The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. I want to divide for us our passage today in, in scenes, if you will, scenes to consider. And the first one being that of this defiant giant. The, the author here, he, he gives this depiction, which is lost a little bit on us because it uses measurements that, that we don't recognize. But you need to imagine that this man comes forth standing nine foot, nine inches tall, covered in this monopoly of metalworking. He's this fortress of a guy. Not only does he dwarf anybody in comparison, but he has all of the highest technology of the day, all of which Israel doesn't have access to. If you've read 1 Samuel up to this point, they don't have access to metalworking like the Philistines do. They have to go to the Philistines just to sharpen their plows. And the Philistines aren't exactly about to give them weapons. And so here you have the pinnacle of a man with the pinnacle of the technology available in his day, and he stands out among the people, right? And it describes him as a champion. Now, we use the word champion in multiple different ways, and so I want to refer to the Hebrew here just to give us clarity on what kind of champion we talk about, right? We're not talking about a conqueror, right? We're not talking about the song, We Are the Champions, Okay, we, we are talking about something here, which in Hebrew is literally the man of the between. The concept being that you have two enemy lines drawn up against each other, and the one who goes for you on your behalf between the lines is your champion, your representative. He's the one who goes forward on your behalf into the danger. He is the one who is the pinnacle, the best that you have to offer, the man of the between. That is what we talk about when we talk about a champion here. And I want us to consider that. Kids, I hope you're paying attention. The man of the between is a champion. So then who will go? And, and there's this mocking tone in the giant, most certainly, but you've got to imagine that the weight of his words hits even heavier for the people of Israel because he says, choose for yourselves a man. And if you remember from last week, we talked about the fact that the people of Israel already tried that. It's not going so well for them. That the one they had chosen for himself, right, the one they had chosen for themselves was Saul. Saul the king, who was in fact a head taller than anybody else in all of Israel, 
but who was with the rest of Israel cowering in their tents. They were faced and defied with what seemed to be an insurmountable challenge. And we find ourselves in many circumstances with many considerations that can cause us to feel that same level of fear. Things that come out and defy the Lord and say, who's going to stand up? Who's going to stop us? Who could possibly derail what we have designed? Israel hid. They didn't know what to do. They didn't have any counter. There was no man on their side who was equal to Goliath. No one could have stood up to him. They couldn't beat him on strength. They couldn't beat him on equipment. They had nothing against him. And he defied, he scorned, he mocked the people of Israel. The people had chosen someone for themselves, and he had proven to be a failure. But... God had chosen someone else. Picking up in verse 12, we're now going to read, this is going to be a little bit longer. We're going to read 12 through 30 here. So please follow along with me. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. The names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of parched grain and these ten loaves. Carry them quickly to the camp for your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. It's kind of generous to say that. They're standing around looking at each other. But... They said, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as David had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to battle, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold... The champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All of the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with the great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, 
what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so it shall be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David and said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him and toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. So we have our second scene. First, we have the defiant giant, this insurmountable foe, the one who stood towering above all of Israel. And now we have this sent shepherd boy. Not particularly spectacular, the youngest of eight sons. So not only is he not first string, he's eighth string. He's the one who's left behind to watch the sheep. And he comes upon the scene, and we see a, a number of different things which immediately should strike us as a contrast with all those who came before him. First, there is a parallel that we see. It should catch our attention if we've been reading through the book of 1 Samuel, because while uh, Ephrathah is a place in a clan of no significance, We've already seen something significant come out of this clan of no significance. And so the fact that now we have a second man who comes out of Ephrathah, out of Bethlehem, should cause us to perk up a little bit. Then we hear it's David, and we know from just the chapter before, this guy is anointed by God to be king, even though he's still just a boy. He comes out, and the next thing we should notice is that he comes and he drops off his stuff with the baggage and goes straight to the lines. Now, if you only read this chapter, that detail might not strike you as significant, but if you read the anointing of Saul, after God had anointed him and all of Israel gathered together to say that he would be king, to confirm him, they couldn't find him. And where was Saul? He was hiding among the baggage away from the focus where nobody could harm him or pay any attention to him. And here we have David who leaves the baggage behind and goes right to the front line. It won't be the first or the last time that we see David contrasted with Saul. But there was something about the shepherd boy that he went and he went to his brothers who were at the front line. He went and the giant came out, and for 40 days, 40 days, Goliath had gone out. Every day gave the same speech, shouted. Everybody went back to their tents. And what's amazing is on this day, just like the previous 40 days, Israel comes out, they're shouting, we're going to do it, we're going to win, we're going to be awesome, this is going to be great. As if Goliath wasn't there, as if they had forgotten they talk a good game, but then the giant comes out, and what do they do? They, they pull back. They retreat. All the same as before, but there's one major difference. The difference is not in what the giant said. The difference is not in the truth of God, but the difference is that David heard him 
This time, David heard him, and he begins to ask some questions. And I want you to see that he's asking the right questions. Now, he's asking, first of all, is that true? Is that true that the king is going to do that for whoever defeats the giant? But more importantly, he says, who does this guy think he is? And it's funny because every person that he talks to is willing to answer the first question and just completely ignores the second. Isn't anybody going to do something about this guy? Who does this guy think he is? This is the armies of the living God. Why are we letting this happen? Well, the king says that if anybody stops him, they'll be greatly rewarded. I got that, but nobody's going to do anything? Well, the king says that if anybody does do anything, right, if somebody stops him, they'll be greatly rewarded. And he goes from person to person to person. Is anybody going to do anything about this? Who's going to Why are we letting this guy defy the living God like this? Well, the king says that whoever slays the giant will be greatly rewarded. What about the... Guys, I'm asking two questions. You're only giving me one answer. And he goes to the next person. He goes to the next person. His brothers get fed up with him which you can only imagine they're probably a little bent out of shape because he gets anointed king in front of all of them, the youngest piddly brother who's supposed to just be minding his own business watching the sheep. But David has this perspective. He's asking the right questions. There's something that he sees that he understands by God's grace and by God's favor on his life. He understands something that the armies of Israel are missing. And it doesn't take long before the word about what David is saying gets around and it comes to Saul. And we're going to read here in the next few verses, verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard and repeated, and they repeated them before Saul, he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. And David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when they came, there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it from his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put on a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, but he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. He took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones for the brook, and put them in his shepherd's pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. This is David's perspective. This is the third scene that I want us to consider. The God who delivers. The God who delivers. David sees something here. And he sees every element of the story in its proper place. He sees the giant. Now, I want you to note that when he describes the giant, he doesn't say, well, he's like a little kitty cat. 
he's nothing. He, what, is, what is Goliath? He's, he's a nobody, right? What does he compare him to? He compares him to a lion and a bear, and all we're missing is, and tigers, oh my, okay? These are scary things, all right? A lion is a scary thing. A bear is a scary thing. These are big things that normally a little shepherd boy should not pick a fight with, all right? There's a reason that we have a phrase, which is, don't poke the bear. Why? Because a bear will kill you, okay? Goliath is a big, huge, scary, monstrous enemy. David knows that. But he knows the Lord. He knows that the Lord is greater in the God of armies. And that God had delivered him out of the hands, out of the paws of the lion, the paws of the bear, and will deliver him out of the hand of the Philistine. Guys, God is not limited by circumstances. God, he is enormous and monstrous to me and to anyone else, but to God, he's nothing. And just like God can slay the lion and can slay the bear, God can slay the giant. And David also sees the people. Who is, who is this giant to defy the armies of the living God? This is, this is God's army. Saul, it's not your army. David doesn't say that part, but it's implied, right? This is God's army. This is God's people. Is there any enemy that can stand against God's people if God goes out before them, if God is going to deliver them? David knows the answer. No, there's no one who can stand before the Lord. There's no enemy that will come against God's people and will ultimately conquer them. David knows this. He's experienced it in his life. And with each experience, his faith and his confidence in the Lord has grown to the point where now even this little, tiny, insignificant shepherd boy comes and says, I'll, if no one else will step up, I'll come in. I'll go fight. Saul's like, okay. Better him than me, I guess. He tries to equip him, to give him a bunch of stuff that David can't really use. It's not sized for him. He hasn't walked around in armor for his life yet. One day he would be a mighty warrior, but today he's just a shepherd boy. So he takes what he's used to, a staff, his sling, grabs some stones. Don't try and figure out a significance of five stones, by the way. It's, he's just humble. He just doesn't think, I'm going to hit, I'm going to do this in one shot. Gets a few stones, puts them in his bag, goes out to face the giant. This is incredible. Now let's go ahead. We're going to read it through 41 through 54. Let's see how this battle unfolds. The Philistine moved forward 
and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. I just imagine the guy carrying like a door of bronze. And the, and the Philistine looked and he saw David. He disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I'll give you your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of all the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is God, a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and a spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came near and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, and he took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There is no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran, stood over the Philistine, and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines, Philistines fell on the way from Sherim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. The battle. As this scene unfolds, there's several key things that we should make note of. The first is that this giant is insulted just by the presence of David. That David is so insignificant that it's like a mockery to this giant that you would even consider sending somebody so unworthy when there's so many better candidates standing right behind the guy. But in the midst of this feeling insulted, he does something which is kind of weird, which is he swears and he curses by his gods and in a way elevates the nature of the conflict to the true plane where it was existing, God versus God. And if you've read through 1 Samuel or if you were in our Bible study this morning, you know that the Philistine god Dagon ended up headless on the ground in front of Yahweh. And here we have the giant champion of the Philistines ending in the same way. That the, the champion of the Philistines didn't stand a chance, just as the God of the Philistines did not stand a chance. But I want to hone in and focus on one thing very specifically here in this passage. It's a phrase that David uses. And there's a great victory, and there's this, this excitement in all of Israel that they are delivered this day. But David says something that's really significant here, and he says that it's the first time that it appears 
in the scriptures, and it's not the last. He comes before the Philistine and he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. I come to you in the name of the Lord. I come to you in the name of Yahweh. The one who comes in the name of Yahweh, this is the man of the in-between. This is, this, is, this is the champion for God's people. The one who goes in the name of Yahweh before the people to fight the battle. This is significant. This is important. And we see it not only here, but we read about it in Psalm 118. I don't have this for you up on the screen, but I'm going to read it for you. This is a psalm. It's written or at least it's ascribed to David later on. And in verse 25 through 29, it says this, Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar, you are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This same chorus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is rightly ascribed to Christ Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. And the people at the time, though they rightly reacted and said, this is the one, this is the champion, this is the anointed, the Messiah who has come to rescue us, though they didn't understand it, they were right. And so we come to this concluding thought, and I want to share some some perspective on this story. That, that there is this anointed, there is this one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the champion. This is the one. All of us and everyone across the globe ask this question when they find themselves in peril, when they find themselves in difficulty and struggle. They say, who, who will stand on our behalf? Who, who can fight this battle that I can't win? Is there anybody who's on my side? And they look and, and they try and select somebody. Maybe this one has enough fight in them. Maybe this person will represent us. Maybe this person will make my voice be heard. Maybe this person will do something for me and for my life. But for us who are Christians, I want to give you some good news this morning, which is that God has chosen for himself a champion to go out for his people. That there is one who comes in the name of the Lord and is the man of the between. It's the one who stands on our behalf. He is Christ Jesus. This is the first truth that I want you to understand this morning. You are not the champion. I am not the champion. There's no elected official who's going to be the champion that you need. 
There is no ruler or power on this earth that can be the champion that you need. But Christ Jesus is such a champion. He has come in the name of the Lord to save his people. The second thing I want you to understand, this is true, and we need to understand it. We may understand that he's the champion. We may understand he's the savior. The second thing I want you to understand is that Christ is fighting and Christ is winning. That when Christ goes between us and the enemy's battle line, he doesn't do so haphazardly and he doesn't do so in a way that he will lose. But that Christ is fighting and is winning. We look out at the world around us and we we have this almost pessimistic and hopeless perspective. And we say, well, it's just not as good as it was when I was growing up or in my day or, oh, the United States is done for or the world is doomed and all this stuff, as if Christ is not actively engaged in the struggle, as if Christ is not able to win Christ is marching in this world today, saving people to himself, redeeming this world one soul at a time, drawing to himself a people who will ultimately be gathered together as he rules and puts all nations under his feet. Christ is fighting and Christ is winning. This is true today. It will be true tomorrow, and it will be true the next day, and the day after, and the day after, and the day after. We as Christians have more hope and certainty in the future than any other person following any other God, because we have a champion engaged in the battle. But with this acknowledgement, we need to have the perspective that we need to look to Jesus as our hope and as a champion. Why do we keep looking around as if our hope rested on the powers that be, as if our hope rested on the direction that the country goes or that the continent goes? or that any other thing goes, as if there is any force on this planet that can stand against the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean they're not scary. Giants are scary. Bears are scary. Lions are scary. Okay? It's all scary stuff. There are scary forces that we face on a regular basis. In our temptation, I don't think it's necessarily that we don't realize that they're there, but we've sort of convinced ourselves if we don't make eye contact, maybe they'll leave us alone and let us keep our lunch money. If, if we don't engage and just move quietly through, we'll be okay. As if we don't have a champion who is fighting on our behalf, who is leading and advancing his kingdom today in this city, in this country, in this world. Every day, more are saved. 
by the grace and by the power of Christ. And so I want to leave you with this thought. Because you're not the champion, I'm not the champion, we're all the people on the sidelines, okay? We're the Israelites afraid in our tents. So this is what we need to do. All right, three pieces, it's one point, it's three pieces, okay? Pray expectantly. Pray expectantly. God hears you when you pray. If you are his, if you are his people, he has anointed a champion for you who is praying for you on your behalf. Join him in praying. Second thing, follow Jesus. Follow him. So many people want to claim the promises of God, but don't want to have any regard for the demands of God, for his spirit of goodness and faithfulness and, and for his law and for his standard. This is the way, this is what holiness looks like. You should become more like Christ if you follow him. Follow Jesus. And the last thing I want to tell you is get ready to move. Get ready to move. Because I tell you what, you see things in your life and you say, There's, this cannot be moved. This will not change. Really? This person, I know I should pray for them. They don't believe in, in the Lord. They're so far away. There's no way. What, what could I possibly do? You, you can't do anything. But Jesus... He, he can do something. I'll confess to you. I want to I share this with you from my own life. I never, in, in all of my time, I never thought that Roe v. Wade would be overturned. I, I assumed that that would go forward indefinitely. I, I confess that to you in my, in my shame. I... I did not have faith that the Lord could do anything about that or that he would. And then I heard that it happened, and you know what? I still didn't believe. There's nothing that can stand against Christ. He is fighting. He is moving. So keep your eyes open and be ready to jump up and follow him as he knocks down the giants, as the strongholds are destroyed, as the pathways for the gospel are made ready. Be ready to jump up and to join the fight. We fight as we bring forth the gospel that Christ through his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection has provided a path that even the worst of sinners can be united to God and saved out of the depths of their sin. And Christ, the champion, will draw all things to himself. I encourage you to have this hopeful mindset, to be ready and excited for every opportunity you have to share the gospel in your life. One of the things we do here is we, 
we do five plus, which is this idea that you pray for five people that you know don't know the Lord, that don't know Christ. And you know, there are people that are on my list, as I would imagine there are on your list, who you think, I don't know how this person could ever receive Christ. Maybe you even know somebody who's on your list who hates Christ, who is raging against him. There's a lot of people in our world who are doing that right now, raging against God, raging against the created order, raging against Christ. But you know what? It's not impossible for Christ to save. His arm is not so short that he can't redeem them, that he can't stretch out and bring them back to himself for his glory and for his kingdom. And that's why we pray. That's why we prepare ourselves so that when the time comes, if the window arises, we are ready and set to share about Jesus to these people, to invite them to Christ, to know him, to taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to invite the band back up, and we're going to close with an old hymn, A Mighty Fortress is our God. A mighty fortress is our God. A couple of parts of it, I, I asked him specifically to sing this song. Although I didn't think I had to twist Josh's arm too much to get him to sing it. Uh, a couple of things that I, I love in this hymn is that it talks about the man of God's own choosing. The man of God's own choosing, who, who was David in 1 Samuel 17, but who is Christ our king. Lord Sabaoth, the God of armies, is his name from age to age the same. Do we believe that today? I hope that that will be the anthem of our heart, even as we allow it to be the anthem of our mouths as we sing this song. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is none like you, and we are so desperate to know one like you, we know and we recognize that there's so much that is beyond our ability to confront in this world, that is beyond our ability to fight or to conquer. And yet you, Lord Jesus, have gone before us as a champion for your people, as a king and as a representative, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus, we ask that you would accept this song of hope, a declaration of confidence in our great God and King and that you would imprint this truth upon our hearts, that we would go forth as a people of hope. In your great name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Life Community Church Alexandria. We believe there should be no anonymous Christians, so we would love for you to visit and worship with us on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org for more information. Thank you and God bless.